In our last episode, a shootout ensued when Earl Shelton's bulldog killed Charlie Burgers in a dogfight, one of the common forms of entertainment at the bootlegger's hideout, Shady Rest. Night of Another Sort Prohibition Days and Charlie Berger by Gary Deneal Chapter 13 Charles Hard Rock Davis and the Anti-Horse Thief Association Many burglaries in the area south of Harrisburg in the summer of 1925 led to the establishment of the Anti-Horse Thief Association. Meeting regularly, its members were versed in such useful procedures as how to set up a successful roadblock, when to fire the warning shot, and when to shoot in earnest. The items most commonly stolen were chickens and tires, but cars were also taken. In fact, too many of them. Angry, the farmers and storekeepers were not impressed with Sheriff John Small's protests that he and his few deputies could hardly patrol the country's back roads from dusk until the morning hours and maintain any kind of order in the daytime, too. No, the locals would have to work together, insisted Small. They had a choice, either cooperation or chaos. Take it or leave it, goodbye and good day. The association's first attempts at policing were as disheartening as the portly sheriff's parting words. So, while their chickens boiled in other men's pots, they fumed at fate, at John Small, and at the rising tide of barbarism. But on the night of December 5th, 1925, the Rudment chapter of the Anti-Horse Thief Association captured two robbery suspects, and, by so doing, played an unwitting role in the fate of Berger and his gang. Much of this account came from my grandfather, Guy A. Daniel, who was a member of the association. He was also a special deputy of John Small. Three nights earlier, someone had tried to break into Hosea Park's general store, ten miles south of Harrisburg. From his home across the road, the store owner heard the noise, grabbed a gun, and went to investigate. When they heard him coming, the would-be robbers fled, taking nothing, so far as Parks could discern. The next two nights found Parks and his shotgun in a second-story niche of the store building, waiting. He heard the questioning cry of an owl from across the cold pastures, and the scratching of a mouse as it skittered across the hardwood floor, its nose alert for crumbs. But he did not hear the robbers return. Late Saturday afternoon of December 5th, there came a pre-winter storm with hard winds and bitter cold. On a night like that, Parks reasoned, even a dedicated thief would not venture out. By staying home that night, he badly misread the criminal mind. The storm broke around midnight, leaving a frozen world in the glow of a very cold moon. Around 1.30am, Parks' bird dog began to bark. The weary stormkeeper pulled on his clothes, grabbed the shotgun and the 32 long barreled revolver, and slipped out into the yard. Across the road was an automobile with its hood raised. Very clearly in the moonlight, he could see the figure of a man standing on the porch of the store. One of the two pistol shots Parks fired toward that figure seemed to find its mark, but the man shot back before disappearing on foot down Travelstead Lane that led north from Rudment. 
With lights off, the car sped west on what was soon to be Hard Road Route 34. At the time, however, the roadbed had merely been graded as step one in a process that would soon transform this horse and buggy route into a splendid thoroughfare for Model Ts, if not for today's coal trucks. Meanwhile, Mrs. Parks rang up Sheriff Small in Harrisburg to tell him that the automobile was headed his way. Assuming that the sheriffs would set up the necessary roadblock, she next called her brother, Guy A. Deniel, a school teacher in Saline County. Following the jangling of the various telephones, several men armed with shotguns arrived at the store, ready for action. Minutes earlier, Parks had poured antifreeze, cranked to the car, and then lit out in pursuit. Perhaps a quarter of a mile west of Rudment, the car he was pursuing suddenly swerved, flashed its lights, and passed its pursuer barreling east. Wheeling his own car's headlights in the same direction, Parks resumed his chase and quickly found that the other car was outdistancing him. He pulled in at the store, telephoned the sheriff the disconcerting news that the fellows had switched direction, and then, taking some of the newly arrived association members with him, once again lit out down the road. Beyond the crest of Lockwood Hill, they found a car, a Ford, parked beside the highway. In the back seat, shivering under a quilt, was a fellow who claimed he had been hunting that bone-cold night, had come upon this parked car, and had just got in. With men from two cars holding shotguns on him, he was unable to explain why the engine was warm or why the license plates were missing. The next day, overcoats taken in the store robbery were found stuffed in a nearby culvert. One of the men drove this car to Harrisburg, while the hunter was taken in the other car to the Saline County Jail. Escorting him were Parks, Deniel, and two other men. About three miles west of Rudment, on what is known as Black Man Hill, Parks and friends met a car that slowed as if to stop, then sped on. At the time, they gave little thought to the incident, being more concerned with the prisoner in their custody. When they arrived at the jail, these men were angered to find Sheriff Small still in bed. Apparently, he had not taken Park's call seriously. Still, their night's work culminated in a cell door clanging shut, and the weary fellows headed back toward the heavy quilts of their homes at Rudment. Or so they thought. About six miles south of town, they noticed a pedestrian walking their way. He wore a sheepskin coat with the collar upturned, a style that was fitting considering the night. But Parks thought he detected a resemblance between this person and the figure on the porch that he had surely winged. He slowed the car to find out. One good look was satisfactory. From the driver's side, he and Deniel slid out of the car, since a luggage carrier made an exit almost impossible from the other side. As the suspect reached for what seemed to be a pistol, the storekeeper shoved the 32 in his face and threatened to use it. As it turned out, the man had been reaching for a syringe filled with morphine. While Hosea Parks' index finger danced dangerously near the trigger of his gun, his brother-in-law retrieved a 45 automatic from the pedestrian's pocket, along with a chisel. Once again, it was back to town, this time with a prisoner who refused to say more than his name, which he claimed was Steve George. His look of dejection was heightened by the cut on his lip, for which Parks took credit, marking it up to his years of sighting down a rifle in squirrel season, and the burrs that clung to his sheepskin coat. They had no way of knowing it, of course, but these amateur crime fighters from the Rudment Hills had just captured the most feared of Charlie Berger's gangsters. What they didn't know made for sweeter dreams. 
Considered to be of less than average intelligence, this gold-toothed Bulgarian actually seemed to enjoy killing, according to some who would have known. No Sunday school superintendent himself, Art Newman was to tell a reporter more than a year later that Steve's reverence for human life was practically non-existent. Somewhat wary of this particular gangster himself, Berger once told Arlie O. Boswell that while most of his men were harmless punks, he had one really bad character named Steve George, a man he had to watch like a hawk. Bragged Berger, I believe I could get him to kill anybody for maybe a cigar or at least a $5 bill. Formerly a miner at Harco, Steve was no stranger to the Harrisburg police. They probably knew of his past, particularly the four years he had served in the Missouri State Penitentiary for the killing of his wife Rosa and her lover, Fred Bolittle, at Deloge, Missouri during a Labor Day picnic in 1915. They were equally well acquainted with John Howard, the man at whose home Steve stayed in Dorsville. For some time, the police chief, Walter Jackson, had wanted to inspect Howard's home. Now with Steve's arrest, he had the opportunity and despite the late hour of 3 a.m., he intended to use it. With fellow officer Charles Hard Rock Davis and the anti-horse thief group crowding in the shadows, Jackson knocked on Howard's door. John Howard had his clothes on, recalled Guy A. Daniel. Just had his shoes off, was in his sock feet, and he was laying on the couch. He just got back, he said, from St. Louis, but actually, he was the one we met on Blackman Hill. They had recognized his car. That pre-dawn raid revealed a loaded automatic in a dresser drawer, and also some medical paraphernalia that Daniil believed was used to induce abortions. In one room, they found perhaps a hundred women's coats. Luckily for Howard and Pals, the labels had been ripped out, making identification impossible, especially since none of the coats had come from Parks' store. More important to the issue at hand, they found a cushion belonging to a Ford car and fitted it perfectly into the automobile found at the roadside earlier. In the interval between the raid and the trial of his two cohorts early in January 1926, John Howard managed to get into a shooting scrape on Harrisburg Square with the redoubtable Charles Hard Rock Davis. Howard had just pulled into a parking place when Davis, who happened to be standing nearby, noticed a pistol laying in the front seat. Many officers would have chosen to overlook the weapon, considering the owner's reputation, but to Hard Rock, that pistol might as well have been a fuse sizzling down to dynamite or a naked woman, shameless in her glory. It had no business on the square, his square. Guy A. Daniil was not there, but he heard about what happened. Hard Rock just reached in, and as he started to get it, John Howard grabbed it. Old Hard Rock was quick on the trigger. He had a big 44. He jerked it out and shot John. All that saved Howard's life was a gold watch, but it knocked the wind out of him. The next time bullets flew, John Howard would not be so lucky. Meanwhile, Hard Rock had problems of his own. The moonshiners from Eagle Creek, that hilly region where the southeastern part of Saline County joins Gallatin, found that Davis was a man to avoid when delivering their goods in Harrisburg. One notable exception, however, managed to walk past the policeman with the bottle strapped around his waist, hidden under his shirt. No less accommodating to the Burger gang, Davis once made the mistake of trying to search one of Burger's cars that happened to be parked in the square. Displaying his usual calm, Berger told one of his bodyguards, my informant, to take care of the matter, which he did. 
Slipping up behind Hard Rock, he delivered him a blow on the head with the butt of his pistol. About to follow through, he was told by Berger merely to empty the cartridges from the policeman's gun and let him be. To this day, Charles Hard Rock Davis is remembered as an uncompromising police officer, almost one of a kind. On January 5, 1926, the trial of Steve George and his accomplice was held in the Saline County Courthouse, with Judge Abbey presiding. The prosecutor was State's Attorney Charles T. Flota. George's attorney was former State's Attorney Charles H. Thompson, a man who would later serve as a justice on the Illinois Supreme Court. According to DeNeal, who was present during the trial, Thompson did not appear altogether pleased to have this murderer, drug addict, and petty thief for a client, but went through the motions of defending him with as much professional aplomb as he could muster. That one of his men should be the focus of the court's attention was disconcerting to Berger, who, in his heavy overcoat, was conspicuous at the trial. From Harrisburg gambler and businessman Dan Lockwood, Parks learned that Berger had threatened to kill him. Having reason to believe that under his overcoat, the gang leader carried a gun, possibly even a machine gun, the storekeeper managed to borrow a pistol from Deputy Sheriff Henry Mitchell. Nor did DeNeal rest easy after the trial, especially when he noticed that Steve George's brother seemed to be following him wherever he went. The schoolteacher was not too worried, however, thinking probably the fellow only wanted back his brother's pistol, then in DeNeal's possession. He did not get it. As for Berger, my grandfather found him more a puzzle than a threat. As the proceedings droned on, he thought back a few months to his first sight of the gangster. It occurred just after one of Small's deputies, Royce Klein, had been killed. While Klein's body lay within the Gaskins funeral parlor, a little run of a fellow was raising Cain on the sidewalk outside the establishment. Indeed, the talk that flew through the town of storming the jail could be traced in part to haranguing like that of Citizen Charlie. Yet here he was in court, as well-dressed as any haberdasher and looking about as deadly. This time he was only listening. A torn lip and a coat full of burrs did not constitute guilt, of course. Nor did Parks' testimony that George was the one who had stood on the porch, firing back at him. Circumstantial though it was, the evidence must have been convincing because the day after the trial began, the jury returned guilty verdicts. Already an accomplished car thief, the younger defendant was sentenced to an indeterminate term at the Illinois State Reformatory at Pontiac, while his more seasoned partner received a life sentence to the Southern Illinois Penitentiary at Menard. Even so, Berger had no intention of letting Steve George spend one day behind bars. Under pressure, the man with the gold teeth could divulge enough of what he had seen and heard to destroy Charlie Berger. At the moment, however, Berger had more on his mind than keeping the murderous Steve George free of prison bars and prying lawmen. He needed someone to fill the space left by Beatrice's departure. Not that the house had been empty of female presence following the night his former wife and her suitcase had journeyed east. Housekeepers had come and gone, but he needed someone to serve as wife and mother, to share his name and his nights at home. Presently employed as housekeeper was Sybil D. Davis, widow of Sam Davis. Davis, along with his son and others from the Harrisburg area, had drowned in a boating accident on the Mississippi, near Memphis in 1919. Following the tragedy, Berger took pity on the Davis family, providing them with coal and groceries. Mrs. Davis's daughter, Bernice, a beauty as Beatrice had been, meanwhile caught the eye of the family's benefactor and began to share his life. Tradition has it that they were married in February 1926. 
She would find that Charlie could be the soul of kindness, both to the children and to her. Even Hosea Parks had occasion to see Berger at his enigmatic best. Early one morning, while in Penke's Bakery in Harrisburg to buy bread for resale at his own store, Parks discovered that his smallest bill was a 20, an enormous sum at the time, and certainly more than the baker could change so early in the day. At that point, Charlie Berger walked in. What's the problem, Mr. Parks? Parks said that making change was the problem. He did not, could not, say that the real problem at hand was having to engage in polite conversation with the man who had threatened to kill him and may be about to do so now. Instead of a gun, Berger pulled out his wallet and extracted from the wad of bills within enough to change the 20. Their paths never crossed again. Next time. Shortly after the barrage of 15 minutes or so had died away, the militia consisting of 20 guardsmen from Carbondale arrived and quickly took positions in front of the bullet-pocked facade of Smith's garage. 